Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Now, today we have on the show Jeremy Harbour, who's here to talk to us about the M&A opportunity for SMEs and really about acquisition as a growth strategies for SMEs to hit scale. Jeremy is based out of Singapore, owns investments in 12 countries and has bought and sold over 50 companies and advised on more than 200 acquisitions. So in today's episode, we're drawing on that wealth of M&A experience to look at the opportunities in the market for SMEs. We look at the concept of unlocking the value in SMEs. And we also look at some interesting elements relating all the way through to why small business isn't an investable asset class right now. So Jeremy has some really interesting perspectives, and this is a really great walk through some perhaps less obvious opportunities that might be out there in the market. So buckle in, here we go. This is an excellent episode, even if I do say so myself. Jeremy, welcome on to the Deal Room Podcast. I'm really excited to have you on here today. Thank you. Look forward to it. Excellent. Wonderful. Okay, good, good, good. Now, um, I have to admit, I'm not sure where we start today. You've got your hand in a lot of pies. You um, you have a lot of ideas about this area of M&A. And I would really like to maybe just give us a quick overview of your perspective of where, uh, you know, where, where SMEs sit in the M&A environment. I mean, M&A is a charged term anyway. I mean, here in Australia, we sort of, you know, the business sales and acquisitions, M&A is usually used for larger transactions. But as a whole, what, whatever we're calling it, um, what's your what's your general perspectives and where do you fit in now in this area? Yeah, I, I guess um, a good framing point is that I come from an entrepreneurial background rather than a corporate finance, you know, legal or investment banking background. So I always started businesses and grew them the traditional way. And so I got into M&A back in 1997. I owned a telecoms company and telecoms is just super acquisitive as an, as an industry. Mm. And so I was constantly on the other side of the table being pitched by telcos trying to buy me. So I kind of, my first education, if you like, as uh, sitting in the seat of the seller. And it was sitting in that seat that made me realize I should be the buyer because I think like, like a lot of those buyers, I also didn't have any money. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> I love the honesty. <laughs> so I repositioned myself as, as the buyer and I bought uh, I bought a little mobile phone company down the road from where my company was based. It was a 13-year-old company. Um, that transaction grew my business by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon. Um, it required no capital up front, no debt from the bank. It was a purely jam tomorrow sort of structure. And that was really my, my baptism and my epiphany into the kind of uh, world of M&A. It was realizing that actually it's not all just sales and marketing. You can also acquire uh, competitors, and you know. Fast forward to today, I mean, and, and that's you know uh, a long time, twenty odd years now. I've done over a hundred deals on my own account, either on the buy or the sell side. I've probably advised on a couple of 
couple of hundred more. Um, so it's a, a really quite prolific in that what I would call owner managed uh, space. I've done two IPOs. I've done about 20 plus reverse mergers, taking companies public through uh, RTO. So I've, I've immersed myself in, in an industry that basically I wasn't uh, naturally a fit for. But I think uh, that's really, really helped me because approaching it from that entrepreneurial angle, because entrepreneurs basically solve problems for money. That's what we do. That's the, the <laughs> genesis of any entrepreneurial thing. And actually, people's businesses are a problem for them. Um, you know, whether it's a baby boomer that's trying to um, succession plan or retire, or whether it's a distressed business or whether it's a business that's mature and profitable and just looking for a way to progress, you know, because quite often you find these businesses are stuck under a glass ceiling and they can't, uh, they can't get out of it. It's that, that problem solving aspect that I think having an entrepreneurial approach to these businesses really, really helps. And I think the traditional corporate finance broking investment banking space just doesn't understand owner managed businesses at all. You know, and, and you, you mentioned the difference between M&A and, and kind of small business. Mm-hmm. Well, in the M&A world, it's one board of advisors sitting with another board of advisors. And so the, the advisors all, you know, tickle each other's bellies and run up massive fees and a deal gets done at the at the end of it. Um, uh, whereas when it's a single negotiating person who's emotionally connected to the business and is the major shareholder or, or only shareholder, it's a completely different animal. You know, none, none of those things translate at all well. So you pick up any book on buying businesses. And the first thing is, you know, surround yourself with a deal team. Mm. Um, well, I describe that as the buggers muddle. You know, you're, you're getting this group of people that just interfere with the transaction. It's like going on a first date <laughs> and taking a team of people with you to advise you on what to say to her or when, when to pull the team or something. But maybe you're talking about the wrong team there. But anyway, yeah, yeah, I, 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 hear, I hear what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> no, but no, I mean, you know, bring the advisors in late and last is my, uh, uh, has always been my opinion. Oh, I like it. I like it. A controversial position. Okay. All right. Well, we. <laughs> I'll, I'll try not to fight too early on. <laughs> yeah, a, lot, a lot of people listening to this will be on the uh, advisor side. So I apologize for all those tweets where I've called them a waste of oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I love it. I love it. The controversial perspective. So obviously you've got a prolific background in M&A, so, and, and I can see some of your views starting to come through. Let's maybe talk quickly about what the opportunities are as you see them. Yeah. So, I mean, look, my, my kind of driving passion for, um, for, for this kind of uh, industry is to help entrepreneurs level up um, and become change agents in our society. Look, when entrepreneurs become wealthy, great things happen. You know, you look at Larry Ellison and what he's doing for cancer research. You look at the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Trust and, the, and the, you know, the impact they're having on malaria and stuff like that. The problem is entrepreneurs don't break through very often. It's, um, it's very hard for them to actually become wealthy from running uh, a business. They create lots of value. They solve problems for people. But that exit point at the end is, is typically not a great value creator. Yeah. And most businesses don't get that, that um, big exit at the end that they're all um, they're all hoping for. But I think that there is massive value sitting in small businesses that needs to be unlocked. And if you can mm. unlock that value, then you could democratize wealth because small businesses are, you know, you're in Australia, it's 50% of your GDP. Mm. Um, it's a huge percentage of the private sector workforce. They are the absolute engine of the economy. And it's the same in just about every mature economy around the world. The challenge is that basically there is tons and tons of money in the world. There is $2 trillion in cash waiting to be deployed into stuff of which $1.2 trillion is waiting to go into uh, private equity. But the private equity 
minimum kind of starting point now is over 100 million. In fact, you know, that's, that would be considered the small end of the scale in, in PE terms. And most PE or VC firms aren't really looking to invest in small companies. They're looking to take them off your hands and, and you know, run with the ball. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they've got 20, 20 MBAs who haven't started shaving yet who can run the business much better than the guy who's uh, <laughs> built it for two decades and <laughs> knows the industry inside out. As, as we all know. Um, and uh, so, you know, it really is a challenging place out there. You can't borrow money from the bank unless you bet your house. Mm. You can't get money from VCs or PE because, you know, you're just too small. And, and yet all this value is being left on the table. And it, and it struck me as being really odd as to why, why it was. And when you look into it, actually, you know, it's very simple. I'm, I'm an investor. And if I look at my, you know, private wealth portfolio, you know, it's a, there's a huge percentage of my portfolio that's in derivative products. So mm. synthetic bank-created products you know these are these are bits of paper that are traded between hot sandy countries that are very liquid i can invest in the morning and divest in the afternoon if i want but they have zero impact on society they don't go into creating any jobs or solving any problems or doing anything they're, they're pretty much bets on stuff mm-hmm. so i own millions of dollars of bets on things um and and most private wealth banking uh, arrangements are very similar to that and in fact if you look at you know the equities market is only about 30 trillion uh, dollars. That's that's investment in you know some of the largest companies in the world, but the derivatives market is ten times global GDP. Mm. It's just an astonishingly large amount of money. It's a quadrillion dollars. It's a it's a one with sixteen zeros after it. Mm. Um, it's an almost inconceivably large amount of money. So um, so why is all that money not coming into the biggest asset class in the in the world, which is small business? And, and basically, it's because as an asset class, small business is, is uninvestable. They're too risky. They do go bust quite quite often. They lack scale. I call it the scale paradox. You have to mm. be big to get big. You can't pitch for the big contracts. You can't get proper banking facilities until you're already big. Um, and they lack liquidity. You can't, if you invest in a small business, it could be two or three election cycles before you get your money back. I mean, every business owner will tell you their three to five year plan and they'll all take 10 to 15 years to actually deliver on it. So um, that, that holds them back in terms of being able to attract global capital. So one of the things that I realized was that entrepreneurs basically need to step up on two fronts. And the, the first one is to add acquisition as a growth strategy to help them break that scale paradox so Mm. the quickest way to double your company is to buy someone the same size the quickest way to succession plan is to acquire a company that has the talent in it already because if you recruit to succession plan it nearly always goes wrong in my experience Uh, and then the other aspect is creating small business as an asset class so we created a governance structure called agglomeration which is a patented uh, governance structure that that uh, my private equity firm, Unity Group, created. Um, and we basically, it's a, it's a roll-up type of structure but, uh, where these small business owners are empowered. So we provide them with a public-listed umbrella company that they can come and join, which allows them to have a lower risk profile because they're now a portfolio of companies. Uh, they have the scale. They now have the big balance sheet and the P&L to point at when they're pitching for bigger contracts. And they have the liquidity of being a fully reporting public company. So if somebody wants to look at an example, um, MBH Corporation PLC, so um, Mini Vulture Hathaway would be one way to remember it. That's not what it's called. Um, but <laughs> MBH Corporation PLC, um, the ticker is mhh.de. Uh, it's listed on the Zetra, which is the main market in Germany. It's a UK PLC, but we have subsidiaries in that company from you know, Singapore, New Zealand. Um, uh, we have uh, companies in Australia in the, in the pipeline, which should be joining soon. Um, we have uh, UK 
businesses, um, US and Canadian businesses, a- anywhere that has that mature market, that demographics issue, clear property ownership rights, <laughs> all of those things mm, uh, yeah. make, you know, make it work. Okay, so so I'm interested in hearing a bit more about that. So so is the model you're rolling up a whole heap of small businesses what in, in a yeah. unified industry or no, so actually we we originally um, played around with single industry, um, but mm. obviously um, industries are cyclical. Um, so you can have downtimes and uptimes in any particular industry. So we've gone far more for the kind of Berkshire Hathaway type of model, which is a diversified investment holding group. So now conglomerates typically get, you know, what would be perceived as the conglomerate discount for not having that focus. But because we have lots of companies coming to join all at the same time, we have effectively incredibly fast growth. So for example, um, I mean, we listed in, uh, we're recording this this uh, uh, this now in um, July. Um, we listed in November last year. We've done six acquisitions uh, since then. And uh, we are three times the size we were in March. So mm. in the last three months, Tripled in uh, tripled in size. The earnings per share is up seventy percent since March. So that should that should compensate for any conglomerate kind of discount. But I mean, acquisition is one thing, and talking about the growth, you know, in size post acquisition. But what's the the revenue model? How does you know return to investors? Yeah. So the companies that join us are um, all profitable, debt free, long established businesses. They typically uh, are more than a million dollars uh, in EBIT. Um, so they're the, um, the kind of premium end of the small business market, if you like. I mean, the last company that just joined us is an engineering services business that's doing uh, $92 million uh, revenue, $10 million profit every year. You know, they, they, these are decent sized small businesses. And yeah, basically, they now, you know, they're now part of this public company. They've got liquidity in their stock. They've got the ability to pitch for bigger contracts. They've got the ability to acquire their competitors and vertically integrate their business because they've now got this public vehicle through which to do that. Um, so, you know, there's lots and lots of benefits for companies joining this kind of structure beyond just continuing to paddle their own canoe as a business. Mm, interesting, interesting. Okay. And so then uh, I guess moving back to one of the first items you mentioned about acquisition mm. as a growth strategy to hit scale, I think that's what yep. you listed. So let's talk about that a little bit. What's What do you see working? Um, what's your, and you have a whole model around a you know, training business owners, is that right, in acquiring companies for growth? Is, is that the idea? Yeah, so we have a global community called the Harbour Club, um, mm. which we started, in, we started in 2009. It's basically uh, a three-day training program and then uh, an app, which acts a bit like, uh, I guess, Tinder for deals. Um, you, uh, <laughs> you're connected to all the other members around the world. So we have, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, uh, Europe, UK, Canada, and US are the main markets for, for us. You're connected to all the members around the world. It's a very high caliber um, network of deal makers. They tend to be more entrepreneurial than professional. There's a few professionals in the in the mix, but mostly it's uh, people from an entrepreneurial uh, background. Um, and basically, people share deals, join venture on deals, uh, and, and uh, collaborate together around the world. And the focus of Harbour Club is basically teaching the skills to deal with owner-managed acquisitions. And specifically, the focus is around how to do uh, deals that don't require cash up front and don't require bank debt. Um, so the whole key is around deal structures that are cash-free, debt-free, um, because obviously that massively reduces the risk when you don't risk capital up front. You have an asymmetric uh, return possibility. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's about how to put those kind of transactions together. So we have 12 different uh, deal structures that are all no cash, no debt. 
uh, based structures, you know, the, at the large end, something like agglomeration, which is where you can do a company with 10 million of profit, right the way down to how, how to do a merger, you know, just a simple acquisition using your own stock uh, in, the, in the right way to add value and to, um, uh, yeah, create more shareholder value. Mm, so this is a topic that a number of people uh, have talked to me about recently. It's an interesting topic. The topic, I, I mean, uh, about, you know, not having to put cash down or dealing yeah. with the issues of financing your acquisitions. So can you just run us through some of the some of the examples of types of approaches? Yeah, so I mean I guess the first thing to be aware of is that most people when they talk about no cash deals are talking about leverage buyout. Mm. Um mm. leverage buyouts are, you know, ridiculously dangerous. I mean, you know, particularly in a small business or an owner-managed business, effectively, you are borrowing money, which you will personally guarantee. Yeah. Um, you're borrowing money and you're giving it to your star employee who is probably massively underpaid for what they do. Um, but you're giving him this so he can leave. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, a, it's a toxic, horrible ball of shite you're creating for yourself, basically. Mm. Um, and so I think leverage buyouts in small businesses are a really, really dumb idea. I mean... Um, I think it was Warren Buffett that said there are three reasons that people go bust and it's <clears throat> liquor, ladies and leverage. And he goes, and actually, I only say, I only say liquor and ladies because they start with an L. It's really leverage. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, it's a really dumb idea to borrow money to buy businesses. I mean, Australia has actually got some awesome case studies of, of leverage roll-ups that have gone spectacularly bust. Um, mm. you know, uh, we, I, I've got a number of businesses in the education sector, and you had ABC Learning. Um, mm. You've had, you know, a whole bunch of people where they just borrowed tons of money, go and buy people. They think that their twenty-year-old MBAs are going to make everything work amazingly for them, and then of course it doesn't. The challenge is with an owner-managed business, so much of the value is in the culture they've created with their staff and their customers that you can't just homogenize them or stick them together or get somebody yeah. else to run. Or, you know things like that. So um, they, you just have to understand the very, very different approach that um, uh, that's needed. But in the twelve structures that we talk about, we like I say, at the simplest end, you have things like a merger, which is you know I think people misunderstand mergers, but a merger is an acquisition using your shares instead of cash. Mm. Um, so it's the quickest, easiest way to double your business overnight. Um, it needs to be done in a safe way that doesn't protect, you know, uh, doesn't put your current business at risk. Um, but it can be used really effectively, and, and that's just a structuring thing. It can be used very effectively for succession planning. You know, my view is the best place to find somebody who can run a business that looks like yours is somebody who's running a business that looks like yours. Um, so <laughs> to get them in, to, you know, get them in. They'll want the CEO role as well, which is great. You know, everybody has an ego, um, mm. so you can get, basically take over and you can go and become non-exec and focus on the on the fun stuff without all the staff and the customers. So yeah, a merger would be a really simple one. Then there's um, just you know structured deals. So using like a, a pie chart kind of approach and having the different components that you would deliver that are not cash, you can bring into a deal. We call that the, the deal pie. You have the kind of uh, the hospital pass, which is good rugby expression, which uh, is great talking <laughs> to Australians because they understand rugby. When I talk about this in America, they just look at me blankly. Um, but this idea of uh, you know the business that's literally about to shut its doors because it's in you know so much trouble. Yeah. Kind of. Well, you have asset strip as your fallback, um, so effectively you can then be quite bullish with the creditors. And the great thing is that you didn't get it into trouble, so you can have a completely different conversation with the creditors than the. Uh, the business owner can because that, you know he's burned all of those bridges and, mm. and finds himself in a very 
uh, difficult position. But, you know, we just had one of our delegates in Australia just bought a um, heat, electrical and heating engineering business doing 8 million a year in revenue. It was basically about to shut the doors and go bust because of all the money uh, it owed. And they've agreed with all their creditors to pay them 50% uh, of what they're owed over five years, just a private arrangement with them. And included in that was the ATO. So they got a discount wow. from discount from tax, which is kind of cool. Uh, in the UK, we, we can only do that with something called a creditor's voluntary arrangement, mm. um, which is where you know, a court approved kind of uh, insolvency process, but, um, but they do this by private arrangement in, uh, mm. in Australia. Wow. And so the business is basically saved, you know, when you only have to pay half the creditors back and you've got time to pay them. Mm. Much better. And they're now merging that with another business of a similar size, which is a retirement sale. And so they'll have a, you know, 16 million plus um, electrical engineering business with with, uh, with no money down. But sure, then they have to turn that around, right? But And so it's not just about doing the deal. Yeah, that one we call the, the hospital pass. So what they would have done in that scenario is basically gone to all of those creditors, offered them that deal. And if the deal was turned down, they would simply move the assets to a new co and liquidate uh, the old company. And again, we have some effective strategies for doing that legally so that the creditors make sure, you know, you make sure you get the best value possible for, for creditors. Mm. Um, but without, um, uh, yeah, getting bogged down in legal and uh, insolvency costs through that uh, through that process. Yeah, and there's 11 or 10 more. <laughs> so, <laughs> a, whole, a, whole bunch of, uh, you know, a whole bunch of things people can do to acquire companies from, like I say, companies that are about to shut the doors and go bust, um, right the way through to companies that do 10 million plus of, uh, of annual profits. And, you know, one element that you mentioned is that this concept of growth by acquisition rather than, uh, I, I guess, through organic sales and marketing. Maybe if you can talk about that just briefly, you know, what what's the benefits you see um, and, and how far can you take this? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean obviously the benefits are, look, the, the traditional way of acquiring uh, customers is you know sales and marketing and um, and all of that stuff and as you know that landscape changes constantly mm. um, you have to be very immersed in it it's quite hard work and you take a lot of risks you're risking you risk investment in marketing and you hope that you get a return from it obviously you can test and then when something works you can scale but there, you know there's a, there's a lot that goes into that when you acquire a company you can obviously you can gain talent they have people working there that you can uh, you can pick up you gain customers you gain scale and basically if you do it you Using a no money down, no debt deal structure, you don't take that capital risk up front in order to be able to achieve that scale. And so from my perspective, I just found doing deals much more fun than dealing with staff and customers. I found <laughs> I, I looked at it as a, a shift from uh, customer value. So when you're doing a startup, everything is about creating customer value, um, but it's shifting towards shareholder value. Mm. So it's kind of working on the business instead of in the business. And, and so one of the first things, you know, when people are on uh, my course talking about um, buying competitors, the first thing I recommend is they have to succession plan. They have to get themselves out of the driving seat because mm. if you're stuck in the day-to-day -day operations of the business, you can't really deal with the strategic stuff. And the strategic stuff should be joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions, or exits. And so, you know, one of the methods I've just mentioned is using a merger to succession plan. So finding somewhere that has a great CEO that would love to run both companies if they were together and uh, and getting together. And I'm not talking about an all shove everybody into one company or anything like that. It's about, you know, you create an SPV, you put the two companies under the SPV, you split the equity in the SPV according to the deal that you've 
negotiated. And you keep the autonomy of the two separate legal entities for safety, but you give them some management control over the over the you know the other one, so that you're freed up and non-executive, so you can go out and sell the thing. I mean, you can sell the thing with them in the driving seat, or you can go and buy more companies or add more to the pot. And particularly, you know, if you're in a, an industry that's very fragmented, which let's face it, is most industries, there's tons and tons of opportunity to roll up other businesses in the same sector and create something pretty, you know, pretty substantial. And if you do it using the structures that I'm talking about, so you're not rolling up lots of debt as you do it, then you can really create a lot of shareholder value in, in not a lot of time. Mm. And so I guess flipping it around a little bit then, what do you think are some of the um, risks in the approaches that you're talking about and how then do you suggest that people mitigate those risks? Yeah, so we're, we're very big on uh, on uh, risk mitigation. So, you know, we always do transactions arm's length. We always use an SPV, a separate limited company, as the contracting party so that there's, you don't have the contracting party risk. So if you have an existing business right now, you don't use that business as the acquiring vehicle um, because then, uh, you know, as a solvent contracting party, you have <laughs> you have uh, you have risk. So we always use SPVs. We always, uh, you know, we've, I always talk to people about how pretty it looks on a piece of paper to build an empire, but actually, it's not very effective. You, uh, having siloed um, uh, businesses is actually a lot more legally robust in terms mm. of uh, protection. So. Uh, that's really important. And then the biggest risk mitigator is don't pay for stuff. Mm. You know, uh, literally, if the if you put the tightrope six inches off the ground, it doesn't matter if you fall off it. It's, uh, <laughs> making, sure, it's making sure that yeah, your your risks your risk is asymmetric. That the only way is up, and yeah. that you've taken away the downside potential and you and you do that with a with a clever deal structure yeah i mean look it's very very interesting i'm finding this com- conversation extremely interesting but you know quite often the businesses that don't need cash down and are more open to discussions about other ways to achieve it are effectively businesses that are finding it difficult to sell businesses that are distressed businesses so it's interesting that you've found a way to yeah there's a there's, there's a number of motivations and you know i mean a great one for example is that glass ceiling thing you know the idea that they've got a great business it's generating profits but they they feel like they're swinging their arms and not landing that many punches and it's very frustrating and so helping people break through that glass ceiling and, and punch above their weight. Yeah, look, and to round it out, I've just got one last question. Earlier on in our discussion, you talked about unlocking the value in SMEs. I just wanted to dig into that uh, just a little bit more. What do you mean, when when you say that, do you mean you're talking about this glass ceiling concept? Well, no, actually, it's more, it's more the fact, I mean, if you look at um, if you look at valuations or valuation kind of arbitrage, I mean, um, yeah. small businesses, you know, they're very liquid, they, they suffer from scale, all of those things that we've talked yeah. about. Yeah. They're, they're getting kind of one and a half to three times earnings as mm-hmm. a, a, as a, you know, a rate of return. If you looked at a, a large publicly listed peer uh, mm. for that company, they could be 20 to 30 times. Uh, yeah. So yeah. you can have 10 times arbitrage or differential in valuation because of scale and liquidity um, mm. effectively. And so um, that value in small businesses, that difference between the three times and the 30 times is effectively un, you know, trapped value. And it's trapped because they're subscale and they're not liquid as investments. So if you can unlock that component, so if you can, can improve the scale and the liquidity, then effectively you, you get that valuation arbitrage. You get that huge increase in, in shareholder value. And that's primarily because you make them an investable asset class You know, mm. at the moment. The, the top 200 asset managers globally, they control $92 trillion. 
and that 90 and they're and they're they're always going on about how well diversified they are you know they're in gold and silver and commodities and uh, equities and this and that and everything else and there's a huge pie chart which shows everything that they're invested in and none of it is small business Mm. 50% of the economy is, is companies that employ less than 200 people. And they're not even an asset class for the top 200 asset managers, $92 trillion. And they're not exposed to the largest part of the economy. So uh, that's what I mean about unlocking the value. If we can make small business an investable asset class, even if we had a 5% asset allocation or a 10% asset allocation for half the economic activity in, in the developed world, that would unlock you know, trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of, of investment capital into uh, the small business arena. That would, I, I think actually, if, I'm going, if I go on a slightly political bent, I think actually the global inequality stuff that everybody's complaining about, you know, this you know, inequality issue, is because we have a parallel economy where all the money is. And then we have a real that employs people. And if you get the money from the parallel economy, which is just finance, banking-related products, if we could get that into small businesses, I think you would democratize wealth and you create a meritocratic link to wealth. So instead of the traditional tax the rich and give it to the poor kind of approach, you would actually have a meritocratic solution for distributing wealth. You'd say, if you work hard and you build a business, you'll be financially rewarded at the end of it, which is kind of what we're all led to believe anyway. It's just not true. (laughs) I I tell you what, we've gone deep here, Jeremy. (laughs) Had more than 20 minutes, huh? (laughs) Um, Look, I just, I I want to say a massive thank you for coming onto the show today. I I actually feel like there's a lot of further places we could go. So maybe we'll have you back on another podcast. But until then, if our listeners uh, are interested in finding out more about the Harbour Club, more about what you do. How do they find you? Yeah, so they, um, they can follow me on Twitter, Jeremy J. Harbour. I'm on LinkedIn as Jeremy Harbour, um, H-A-R-B-O-U-R, so it's the English spelling, like Sydney Harbour. Sydney Harbour, exactly. <laughs> um, or you can go to um, harbourclubevents.com. So harbourclubevents.com. And uh, yeah, we have uh, quite a few Australian members active and running around uh, doing deals and stuff. So uh yeah, you'd have, uh, you'd have friends to play with. Absolutely brilliant. Well, um, look, if you're running along the beach right now on your commute into work, don't worry. We will put all of those links in the show notes. So uh, don't do anything dangerous. Try to note them down. We'll note it all in the show notes and, and you can link through uh, later on to Jeremy and the Harbour Club. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much for coming on to The Deal Room today. Uh, it's been a really interesting discussion. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of The Deal Room Podcast. Now, if you'd like more information about the topic and you would like to connect with Jeremy Harbour or any of the work that he's doing through Harbour Club events, then just head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com where you'll be able to get details of how to contact Jeremy or link through to him in Twitter or LinkedIn. And there you'll also be able to find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal if you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions. And finally, if you enjoyed what you heard today, then please pop over to iTunes or your favorite podcast player and leave us a review. We'd be ever so grateful. Thanks again for listening in. You've been listening to Joanna Oki and the Deal Room Podcast, proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect 
Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to the Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au.